Uh, let's face it, living in a city like this can be pretty overwhelming a lot of the time, can't it? It's like wherever we look, whether it's bin bags, whether it's family breakdown, whether it's loneliness, whether it's homelessness, whether it's hospital waiting lists, whether it's crippling poverty or just turning on the news and seeing day after day after day the sickening crimes that fill our city. We are surrounded by so much need. And however much money we throw at the problem, however many new hospitals and schools we open, how many new libraries or stations we build, how we vote in the elections, still doesn't really seem to resolve the underlying problems. Faced with all of that, if I'm being honest, it can all seem pretty hopeless a lot of the time. Like, faced with such a discouraging landscape, where do we even begin? In fact, perhaps we're tempted to think it's not even worth bothering. I mean, what's the point? What earthly difference could we ever make? Now, tempted as I am to finish on that note and shrug my shoulders and return to my seat, certainly be a more memorable sermon of mine. I instead want to turn to a passage of Scripture to get a little bit of God's perspective on this whole scene. Because in Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul finds himself in an equally grim situation. Starts the chapter by pointing out that he's in prison largely as a result of his faithful obedience to Christ. And Paul is acutely aware that the church in Ephesus could well have found this pretty demoralizing. And so he breaks off kind of mid-sentence, he breaks off from what he was saying, and takes the time to directly address their discouragement. And I think what we're going to find today is that his words to them are incredibly good news. And they're just as relevant for us in our situation today as they were for that Ephesian church. So, anyone interested in knowing what the good news is? Anyone? Mildly interesting? Well, because of the overwhelming response from you, here's what Paul says. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7. By God's grace and His mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving Him by spreading this good news. Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. So please, don't lose heart because of my trials here. I'm suffering for you, so you should feel honoured. When I think of all of this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father 
the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. And the time that remains, I simply want to use these verses to answer three basic questions. First, what exactly then is the good news? Second, how on earth will our city ever get it? And then thirdly, how should we respond to all of this? First of all then, what is the good news? Well, Paul says in verse 9 that actually it's a mystery, which isn't the most promising of starts. But Paul actually had something in mind here that's the complete opposite of perhaps what we understand by the word mystery today. So, straight out of the gate, we have a little bit of a translation problem. You see, when we tend to think of a mystery, we think of something that's hidden, that it's our job to try and work out and discover. For example, when you watch a mystery on TV, or if you were to remain on at the cinema this afternoon and watch a film like Murder on the Orient Express, you'll find that the truth is hidden from you until the very end. And it's your job to try to piece it all together and guess who done it. You're sitting there desperately trying to figure it all out. However, the word for mystery that Paul uses here in Ephesians doesn't mean something hidden that you have to work really hard to discover, but rather it means something that has to be revealed to you by God because you would never, ever, ever discover it by yourself as it is so counterintuitive. In other words, the mystery that Paul is talking about is an astonishing, counterintuitive revelation, something revealed to you that goes completely against anything you ever would have guessed by yourself. So what is this mystery? Well, whenever Paul uses this word, it has something to do with the gospel of grace. Now, here's the thing. We tend to think, don't we, that if there's a problem, we do need to try and fix it ourselves in our own strengths. Incidentally, I suggest that's why the state of our city can be so overwhelming for us. The need is too great. We don't know where to start. It just feels pretty hopeless, and so we feel discouraged because we can't do it. But the mystery revealed in the gospel, which is such breathtakingly good news, is you don't have to fix everything yourself. You can't. It's not down to you. The whole message of the gospel, as we've been celebrating already this morning, is that you are saved by sheer grace. No matter how bad you are, no matter what you've done or haven't done, it doesn't matter one jot. If you believe in Christ, you are completely accepted in Him. Because He did what at the end of the day you were powerless to do. He fully overcame your sin, your guilt, your shame, your condemnation by willingly choosing to take it all on himself. As a result, when you become a Christian, when you become a follower of Jesus, when you are in Christ, you are simultaneously at the start a terrible sinner 
and yet absolutely loved, justified, accepted, welcome in God's sight, adopted into his family as a dearly, infinitely loved son or daughter. And that right there is a huge mystery. Do you know why? Because it's completely counterintuitive. It's not the way we ordinarily think. It doesn't make sense to our Western minds. What makes perfect sense to us tends to be the thought that we're saved by trying really hard to live a good life. That we can somehow, by our efforts, claw our way to God. But the idea that we're saved by grace, that it's from beginning to end a free gift that isn't deserved, earned, or merited, that makes no sense to us. It goes against all our natural instincts that scream at us that we have to work for everything we get. But you don't need me to tell you that trying to fix all of your problems in your own strength is absolutely exhausting and absolutely doomed to failure, which is why it is such incredibly good news that salvation is a free gift from God to us. At the end of the day, it is the only source of hope for you and for this city. And so, secondly, how will Birmingham our city, get this good news. Well, if you look back at our passage, Paul says it's his goal in life to tell everyone about the endless treasures available to them in Christ, to make plain to everyone the brilliance of the gospel. The question is, how's that going to happen? What's the main way that the gospel's brilliance and wisdom is shown, is revealed, is demonstrated to the world? Well, Paul gives us the answer in verses 10 and 11, where he says what I think is probably the most amazing thing he says anywhere. He says, God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's eternal plan, which God carried out through Christ. Paul's referring back to what he says earlier on in this letter, in Ephesians 1, verses 8 to 9, where he explains how the ultimate purpose of God is to bring together everything in the world in Jesus Christ which is kind of necessary because perhaps the main fact about life in this world is things fall apart. Everything falls apart. I mean, what are wars? What are violent crimes? What's racism? It's people who should be together at each other's throats. Things that should be one coming apart and fracturing. Society falling apart. Your relationships falling apart. What's disease? What's hunger? What's death? It's your body falling apart, which eventually, like it or not, happens to us all. The parts of your body break down. They no longer work as they originally did. They disintegrate. They die. But it wasn't supposed to be like that. Read the early chapters of the Bible. The 
early chapters of Genesis, they tell us that originally God created the whole world for everything to be together, everything to be in perfect, eternal harmony, your body to stay together, your relationships to stay together, everything to stay together. And because sin seeped in, now everything falls apart. Everything unravels, everything fractures, everything divides. But God is someday going to restore us to the place where all those things are brought together again forever. There'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more death, no more pain, no more disease, no more injustice. There will be peace on earth forever and ever and ever. That's all well and good. But the question remains, how will the world really see and get and grasp that that is God's purpose? What's the clearest way people can get this incredibly good news of what God is doing? Well, this is what we're told in verse 10. God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom and its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is kind of breathtaking. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying when Jesus dies on the cross to create the church out of all the nations, all the ethnicities, all the people groups of the world, he's revealing to the world in that moment the mystery of God's eternal plan. In fact, he goes so far as to say it's not just to the world, but also to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul's saying that the church doesn't just show the brilliance of the gospel to the world, but to angels and demons as well. Not just the visible world, but the invisible world all look in and are stunned and amazed at what the church is. This is absolutely huge. Don't miss this. The unseen rulers and authorities, angels and demons, don't just see the wisdom of God at the cross. They see it in what the cross created, namely the church. God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom and its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul's saying it's the church, not any one individual as great or as gifted as any individual could be. No, it's through the Christian community. It's through healed and restored relationships. It's through black and white, rich and poor, young and old, relating together without prejudice, without suspicion, without envy. It's through our genuine love and care for one another within the Christian community that the world can most readily see the incredible future that God is preparing for those who believe. Would you just think about that for a moment? The church is designed by God to demonstrate, to reveal, to model something to the world of what the reconciled universe of the future is going to look like. 
And this isn't mere theory. You see, earlier on in this letter to the Ephesians, Paul talks about the very real fact that the gospel has already brought Jew and Gentile together in the church. Which, if you know your history, that was a miracle of gigantic proportions. The gospel had already brought down a division that would never have been eradicated by anything else. And Paul says that the healing of racial divisions inside the church is like this glorious foretaste of a time when all the mutually hostile elements in creation will be united, will be made one again. All the things that fall apart right now, everything that falls apart, all the mutually hostile elements in all of creation will be united, mended, restored, healed. And it's the church that shows people a foretaste of what that's going to be. Listen, the church is to be a brand new society in which this world can see exhibited what family life, what business and economic practices, what race relations, what all of life will be under the healing kingship of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, God is out to heal all the effects of sin, psychological, social, physical. And the place where people can most clearly, most vividly see it demonstrated is to be in the church. Paul says that God's plan for the future, in all its rich, varied wisdom, is displayed to the world in the church in a way that no individual person by themselves could ever pull off. Do you get what he's saying? Pretty astonishing, isn't it? Recently saw an article where 81% of people surveyed said that they thought you could be a good Christian and not be part of a church. And Paul has absolutely no idea what in the world they're talking about. Paul is saying it is impossible for the world to understand the brilliance of the gospel without having churches. And so the church isn't an optional extra for the really keen Christians. No, it's absolutely indispensable to all of God's purposes here on earth, between now and the end of time. Now, all that being said, Paul isn't unrealistic. Paul knows firsthand what a mess all churches are to some degree. I mean, look at him writing to the Corinthians. Look at his writing to the Colossians or the Galatians. All of these churches are riddled with trouble. So Paul's not naive. And yet he still says the church is utterly indispensable. Now, there are 101 ways in which that is true. But let me very quickly just give you one. Show of hands, who thinks that the gospel should change your life? Think the gospel should change your life? I think most of us agree that, yes, the gospel should change your life. So let me ask you, how did you get the life you have right now? How did you become the person you are right now? I guess it's pretty complex, 
But I suggest it wasn't primarily just through individual decisions of yours. It was probably because of your upbringing. It's because of who your family were. It's because of the community, the environment around you. You know that. It's because of the relationships you've had. Those are the things that help form you, shape you, mold you, influence you. And probably most of your personal decisions were in some way a response to those things. Now here's the question. If you want the gospel, the good news of the grace of Jesus, to not just come into your life but change your life, do you think that is going to happen just by you going off and making individual decisions? No, you need a new family. You need a new culture around you. You need to be part of a new community. Because that's how the gospel works its way out. That's how human beings are wired and work. And in a nutshell, that's part of the brilliance of the church. You see, it's through the church that we get to change as individuals in relationship with others. And even bigger than that, it's through the church that this city of ours will eventually change. You're getting the message. Ultimately, God's design is for Birmingham to see his wisdom displayed in all its rich variety through the church. So as we gather like this as one, different ages, genders, races, backgrounds, we're modeling to this city something of the unique power of the gospel to mend what's broken. And then as we scatter into schools, into offices, into hospitals, into businesses, into university campuses and neighborhoods right across this city, we get to take this powerful message to those who need it most. Listen, if we are being transformed by the gospel of grace in community with others in the church and then overflow with grace to the people around us, then I, for one, believe there is yet hope for our city. So thirdly, what then should we do? Five things, just going to flag up the headlines, not go into any detail. First of all, as a result of all of this, let's never, ever, ever fall into the trap of thinking it's all down to us. Instead, we must keep living in the good of God's grace. Second, let's be wholehearted in our commitment to the church. Third, let's do everything we can to maintain the profound unity in the church that Jesus died to create. Fourth, let's go out into this city with a renewed sense of faith, very confident that we have a message that is precisely what this city needs. And fifth, let's not miss the powerful, powerful, powerful place of prayer. You see, God has chosen that the supernatural power required to see the glory of his wisdom overflow in even the darkest of places, well, that comes through earnest prayer. 
Which is why in the rest of chapter 3, Paul prays that what he's been teaching will in fact happen. Paul desperately wants us to see, to know, to experience, to enjoy the endless treasures available in Christ. He wants us to understand and embrace the mystery that's been kept secret from the beginning. He wants us to be a part of displaying the glory of God's wisdom to the powers of darkness. And he doesn't want his own suffering, his own trials, to cause people to lose heart. And so Paul says in verse 14, When I think of all of this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father. Why? Because no human being can see the breadth and length and height and depth of the riches of Christ. No human being can embrace this mystery that's been hidden from the beginning. No one can fully reveal the glory of God's wisdom. No one can be transformed from one degree of glory to the next through suffering without God's mighty supernatural power at work within them. And so God has chosen to give that power to his church through prayer. And so what we're going to do in a few moments, we're going to follow Paul's example and we're going to pray.